Good afternoon and welcome to the Sitka Nature Show. This is your host, Matt. I want to thank you for joining me here in the second weekend of March 2022. We are just a week away from the spring equinox and the lighter half of the year will begin at that time. It is nice to be reaching the end of this dark half of the year and things are turning towards spring, having some weather that is starting to feel a little like herring weather, I guess, as we like to call it, with snow and sleet and rain kind of mixing together and some gusty winds with sun in the middle. It is also a time when birds are beginning to move. Uh, the swans, many of them have departed Sitka now and headed north. Uh, we've started to see some arrivals in the form of goals showing up, especially with the uh, beginning of longline season last week, uh, last weekend, I believe the uh, channel has hosted a few more goals and they're showing up on beaches around town. So it's a good time of year to get out and we'll be seeing some songbird migrants probably by the end of the month. The first ones of those will be showing up. Robins are often one of the first uh, songbird migrants I notice at least. So I hope you're getting out and getting a chance to to see what's out and about plants and flowers coming up. Uh, so I'd love to hear what you're seeing out there. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, or you can get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. The conversation I have for this week's show is one I recorded this past week with Zach LaPerriere. We'll go ahead and join with him, sharing a little bit about his experience getting to know some birds in his yard. Just living in a cedar forest on the edge of the water, we don't have that many birds, variety, that is. I mean, my neighbor who's a little further out she sees a ton of warblers and all sorts of things like that. But And we do a little, but just that intersection of predominantly cedar and hemlock forest and ocean there, you know, it's mostly, I mean, other than the things that swim by, mostly juncos and sparrows and, and a fair number of chickadees roll through too. Uh, and then I do hear a lot at the top of the trees, siskins and, and others, but it's it's a pretty small list. Mm. And you were telling me before we started recording about spending time there uh, when you were, I guess you don't use the lathe quite as much as you used to, but you have an open workshop for your lathe. Mm-hmm. Is that kind of how that worked and, and having birds come visit? Yeah. So I have an open air shop under my house, you know, which just looks out to the ocean. And so the sparrows have a routine, as do the winter wrens. I uh, have to give a big shout out to the winter wrens, uh, sorry, Pacific wrens, uh, just to be correct. Uh, I still think of them as winter wrens, old habits, but they come down and uh, look for bugs, um, especially the wrens, and just kind of hang out. I think it's a secluded area. We have a feeder up at about 10 feet up high, so I think it's also a bit of a, a hot spot for sparrows, juncos, and chickadees. Um, but yeah, it's just fun to get to know individual species over the years and recognize them. Not saying that I recognize all of them, but some of them have really unique uh, markings or behavior that it's pretty easy to say. Oh, that's that's the same one that you know disappears every summer and comes back in the fall, and then kind of disappears a bit in the winter and see it heavily again in the spring. Mm. So you noticed, were there any that you saw year-round, or were they all pretty seasonal, the ones that you were able to recognize at least? You know, that's the weird thing about the sparrows around our house is that, you know, most years they leave for the summer. Uh, But last year was different, and so I did see a few more sparrows last summer. But usually, uh, I mean, there's sort of an overlap with when we might see cormorants out on the reefs as well. So it seems like uh, when the weather 
just pushes birds further out. Um, the sparrows, I think they often nest elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's because there's a lot of thrushes in the area that are also using it, or there's they just might all have favorite spots to go and nest. I have no idea. But last year uh, was different. It was the first year. And, and we were seeing both um, fox and song sparrows, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, again... <laughs> Not very good at IDing. Yeah, those are a, a challenging pair uh, to to. They're around here at least. They're they're quite similar. I think in other places they look more different, distinct. Mm-hmm. But they're both kind of dark and brown. Um, different uh, song sparrows tend to be more streaky. Um, fox sparrows can look like they have streaks, but the streaks are made up of little chevron things. Right. That's and, what make. That's yeah. my. My. Per- and then the other point. thing, at least in adult birds, is the fox sparrow. You. Generally has the lower bill, part of the bill is yellow. And, right, 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 yeah. right, right. So, and then if you, as you get used to them, like, and get to know them a little better, I guess, so to speak, um, the shape of their, the way that they hold themselves is also a little different. Like, I think of a uh, fox sparrow, it's subtle. Like, I wouldn't, I, I just can see it. You know, it's one of those things that's interesting. I've been thinking about this lately. It's like, our ability to see, notice things, notice differences, and recognize things is far greater than our ability to articulate what it is that we're actually <laughs> seeing and noticing, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I could sort of point at, like, with fox sparrows, that their head seems rounder, and they seem sort of rounder overall somehow. Um, but I don't, you know, that's kind of a, uh, it depends on how they're holding themselves and, and all sorts of things. So it's not something that you could you could always point to and say, well, see, that one had a round head, so it must be a fox sparrow. Um, so it's, it's, and it's part of a holistic sort of thing, I guess. It's interesting how easily we do that, for most of us do that for people, but, you know, for, for other, other creatures, unless, like you were saying, you get to know individuals. Uh, and I've never really got to know individuals other than ones that either had a distinct white, <laughs> you, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, feathers or two that that were persistent or that we banded that made it easier also having jewelry um, but it, I know that people do through the same way that you're talking about just behavior you know they keep showing up in the same place doing the same thing then it seems like it's a pretty good call that it's the same bird um, and it is interesting you know just it's getting to know like the difference between going to the airport to meet somebody that you've never met before versus somebody that you're familiar with versus somebody that you know really well and, you know, how you're able to see them, you know, the, somebody that you know really well, you could just get the tiniest glimpse of in a crowd and you'll know instantly that that's the person, somebody you've never met before. You need a full list of things and you might ask four people <laughs> that aren't that person before you get to the right person kind of thing. Unless you've, you know, prearranged to have some wild, wild thing going on that that will make them distinctive from everybody else. Um, but that's that's kind of been my approach for like just learning the, the creatures here is like, well, how can I get to recognize them? You know, I have to use some specific things but ultimately i'm trying to see them in a way that i just they look like what they are um so i went off on a little tangent there but the uh, <laughs> the, the song sparrows and the fox sparrows the fox sparrows do nest around here I, I see them nesting more up high i guess but they like thickets and stuff so mm-hmm. song sparrows also nest around here along shorelines around swan lake for example they like mm-hmm. water uh, along beach shoreline but again i think they like having thickets and so mm-hmm. it may be that the birds that are hanging around your area, there's just not quite what they prefer for nesting. So they might, they might not, some of them might not even go very far. Uh, and, and so when you're seeing them, it might be that their territory was actually, last summer, it might have been that their territory was closer, their nesting uh, territory was closer to your house and included included where you're living there. Uh, but some of them do migrate. We had 
in our Song Sparrow banding, we, we definitely had some that disappeared. Like they would be in the same yard all winter pretty much or, you know, right in the same area. They don't seem to move much once they're here for, for winter. And then disappear around April, March, March, April, and come back in August. Right. Um, and then we had some that we banded, you know, we were banding in November and they were here all winter and into the summer. And again, we're nesting right in the, you know, the, I think I think they were banded at my house and nested in, in the neighbor's yard um, mm-hmm. when... One year they nested. I don't know. I don't know if I found their nest. I think one year they actually nested in my yard, but I don't think they were successful. Um, they just had one one chick, and then pretty soon the male was singing again. So I think that that was a, a the chick got got by maybe a neighborhood cat or something. And um, so that's that has been could be both. You know, could be some that are migrating and some that are staying, but just moving a little bit locally uh, in in your yard. But then coming back because you have food there. So then. You know, for the winter, they just hunker down, and it's nice to have a, a food supply. But it right. is fun, yeah. Bird bird watching, you know, getting to know the birds and and having birds that return. It's it's hard to know unless you're out there, and and it does make a difference to be out there all the time. So I imagine when you were sort of getting to know them at your workshop area, you know, is that something where you were seeing them most days, kind of thing? Oh yeah, yeah, and I mean. This gets kind of nerdy, but uh, I'd even start just looking at the time. And, you know, I I don't remember the specifics when I was there full time, but, you know, they were like almost down to the down to the hour with multiple trips. And especially I found the the wrens even more so that they have very, very specific routes at fairly specific times, at least if the weather's the same. And I started noticing, too, the wrens in our neighborhood we have a lot of like little cliffs you know like four to six feet tall that are mossy and the wrens have actually made trails Mm. uh like under the moss you see this teeny little trail that looks like uh well like a wren might have made it and so it'll go in one hole and come out the other and uh yeah they, they they know where the bugs are and so they have a regular hunting routine but i enjoy that stuff uh maybe i'm getting older uh, but they're, they're just, they're really cool. And, you know, they're, they're ferocious little predators. Uh, I, I mean, I'm, I'm glad I'm not uh, a bug or a spider. Yeah. They're, they're good at picking those, those things out there in all the little holes and stuff. And I'd never heard of them making trails. I mean, you say that and I go, well, of course, I guess that makes sense. But when you're just experiencing them sort of haphazardly as you're walking around, you know, right. you're basically walking through their territory. It's not really shared territory at that point. Um, certainly not in the way that, uh, you know, like you were describing where you're Mm -hmm. there seeing them all the time, you're spending a lot of time there as well, that it's, you know, it's easy for us to think, oh, well, animals are just acting randomly, but why would they act any more randomly than we do? Like it, they want food, they want shelter, they want safety. They're concerned about predators in ways that we actually aren't, um, I remember taking a, it was a primitive skills class and the guy was talking about, well, finding rabbits or something. He says, animals move in circles and, you know, they tend to have their patterns and they, then they do that and they know what's up there. And so that's why, you know, when we found that banded birds came back to the same yard, like the song sparrows, juncos, not, not as much, but, but when we saw banded juncos return, they tended to be in the same area that we found them. Like, in hindsight, that's like, well, of course, because why would they go someplace new where they have to figure out all the hazards, all the predators that might be around when they know a place, they know where the food is, 
They have a pretty good idea what the predators are, the safe places, the, the dangerous places. Why would you go someplace different? You know, you had success there before, then you, you want to mi- maximize your chance of success at some level. Um, so when you don't recognize them as individuals, it's easy to imagine that it's different birds all the time. But the, he, he said they go in circles and then, and then you know, and somebody said something about, well, why would they? He goes, well, you do the same thing. You, you just don't mm-hmm. think of it as a circle. You know, you get up in the morning, you go to work, you have your patterns and you follow those patterns day to day. Or you go to school in the case of most of us were in school at the time. So we follow those patterns and day to day it might shift, you know, depending on whether it's the weekend or not. But generally speaking, we follow patterns. And if somebody wanted to, um, uh, you know, track us, we could essentially be predict- pretty predictable most of the time. And so animals aren't, aren't that much different. So it is interesting to develop that kind of relationship where you just, you just, you, you come to recognize their patterns. And I've, I've heard of other people doing that. You know, it's basically what you might call a sit spot routine where you just sit and you watch and you do it at different times of day, but you do it pretty much every day and you could just do it in your yard. Most of us have birds and that's, you know, you were there. Um, sounds like for longer periods of time, cause you were, you were right. working. So that was a good excuse to be out there and observing. And, uh, yeah, it's fascinating. I'll have to look for Wren trails, I guess. I've never thought about that. I've put that challenge to some of my friends who fancy themselves as trackers. Well, they are trackers. <laughs> they're pretty good at it, too. I'll say, have you ever seen a, a Pacific Wren nest or uh, uh, a trail? I just talked to somebody who told me about Pacific Wren trails. So they'll probably be excited about that. But uh, yeah. It blew my mind. Yeah. I yeah. thought it, it, it took me about a year to convince myself that I wasn't just uh, hallucinating. But uh, if you see a bird following the same path all that time and you can see it's tucked under the moss, uh, it, it becomes pretty clear. Yeah, I imagine, you know, again, there's a sense of safety there. You know, that's, yeah. a, that's a passage that, that you're not exposed. And I don't know how much winter wren, Pacific wrens are um, subject to predation. I don't I imagine they're too small for, I mean, maybe a sharpshine hawk would go for them, but they seem pretty small and, and on the ground. Occasional squirrel will. Oh, I, I a caught squirrel. a squirrel about... 15 years ago that was getting a pacific wren mm-hmm. yeah squirrels are one of those things that you know they eat a lot of spruce cone seeds and and squirrel and uh, alders you know you see them mostly working on seeds and you uh, i i've heard about them being nest predators but i've never actually heard of them preying you know more actively on on birds but yeah apparently they're they're kind of uh, predatory as well yeah, I think it depends on the individual squirrel. That's what I've seen um, in our forest, that some are much more so than others. And then it seems to be kind of the leaner times for squirrels that uh, often there's a lot of bird activity, and, mm. and then they'll go after them. It's a little heartbreaking. Yeah, so you actually saw a squirrel catch a, a Pacific wren? Yeah, it was uh, it was in its mouth, I think kind of injured, and then uh, the squirrel... Um, Somehow the wren got free, but the squirrel got it again. Oh. So it, it, it was kind of, I was out deer hunting and I, I watched wow. this sort of unfold. Uh, and I've seen it with a few other small birds. Um, yeah, it just, uh, I, I guess because I feel like the birds uh, have been here longer than the squirrels, I, I'm always rooting for the, <laughs> for the birds. <laughs> yeah. Well, that is interesting. I'll have to, I've never, I've never heard of, of, anyone seen that before so it's mm-hmm. fascinating that that you've managed to to see that and i'll have to keep my eyes open um see if i notice that or um 
Because, yeah, it would be interesting to see. Yeah, I'm, I'm not, like, super excited about seeing the, no, the predator-prey dynamics in, in, in the flesh, so to speak. But, but it, is, it is very interesting. And it is interesting, the ones that we, like, I see, uh, I see uh, boons or cormorants choking down a fish from, or herons. And mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't feel myself having so much sympathy for the fish for whatever reason. I mean, that's, I'm sure it's a bad day for, for them, too. Or, or even the voles in the estuary when the herons get them. But uh, yeah, squirrels getting squirrels. So they must do that on the mainland too. You know, the squirrels have been around, but uh, there. But yeah, it's an interesting dynamic. I think I don't know. Uh, Mary Wilson in Juno did a study on Pacific wren, well, winter wren at the time, nesting ecology, and I can't remember if if there was some relationship that she was looking at with squirrels as well, because then squirrels and nest predation. Of course, squirrels are all over in the trees and stuff. Mm-hmm. So. Um, and squirrels have their own own uh, challenges, I guess. The um, hawks hawks get them. I've seen a red tail mm-hmm. hawk with a squirrel before. I don't know if the um, the other animal. I'm pretty sure I saw a mink carrying a, a Pacific wren one time. I'm not hmm. sure, not 100 percent sure because it went trotting by, and then this eagle flew in, and it it was actually down at um, at the mouth of Indian River Totem Park, and. I was, you know, there's this place where you can look out from the trail over the estuary, and it, it came trotting down uh, in front of me and went around the corner off to my right, which is out towards the ocean. And then this eagle comes flying in and again disappears. And I hear this like hissing, you know, sort of sound and stuff going on where I can't see. And then the eagle flies back and it has just like nothing in its. At first, I thought maybe the mink was carrying a little, like I didn't get a great look at it. I thought maybe it was carrying a baby mink or something. But mm. then later I was like, I think that was actually probably a bird. And it might have been bigger than a, a wren. But it was like, I think it wasn't because the eagle, it didn't even fill an eagle's talon at all. Like it was just, I know, why did the eagle, <laughs> it just seemed like a kind of a bully move on the part of the eagle. That that, that food was not, you know, maybe a bite's worth of, of food for the eagle. And it wasn't that much more for the mink, I guess, unless it was carrying it. But when I walked around the corner there to just to kind of look and see if I could see anything, the mink was there and it was ticked off. It was like coming out of the out of the rocks and sort of in ways that are like I felt intimidated by it. I didn't think that it could hurt me badly or anything like that, but I didn't really want to get chewed on by a mink either, have it run up me or something. And that would have been a little bit um, startling. Uh so it, it was definitely conveying the attitude of it, it didn't want to be messed with anymore. That eagle it had uh, apparently um, not <laughs> not treated it right in, in its opinion. So it is it is those dynamics can be can be pretty interesting. So so yeah, in that case, you know, the wrens no doubt concerned about squirrels and and presumably mink and martin if they're around and um, ermine as well, I suppose. Although I don't, I've only seen one of those once, but I know they're around. So. Uh, those little trails and stuff that feel mm-hmm. safe. Um, I guess whether they are or not is another matter, but they, they convey a sense of safety and take them to their different different haunts. So it's interesting that you are noticing them sort of following the same patterns day after day, depending on the weather uh, and the timing-wise. Um, yeah, it's kind of fascinating, too. There was there have been people who have done that and like mapped out nesting territories and stuff over mm-hmm. years, just kind of. Um, taking notes and, and doing bird ecology stuff just because cause they were interested in it. It's uh, fascinating stuff. 
Well, I know the other day I saw something you posted on, I think you probably, I saw it on Instagram. I probably showed up other places too, because that's the way social media stuff tends to work. But it was something about, um, I don't remember the exact, exact quote, but something to the extent of of that you've, you've tended to do things the hard way, (laughs) um, the slow way, the hard way sometimes. And, and it was in the context of, I think you were, must've been pulling a log back across the bay and, and whether that was not the most comfortable um, and just sort of reflecting on there are easier ways to to get one's heat, but there's a value in in sort of the way that you're approaching firewood in this case. Uh, and I was curious to hear a little bit more about kind of your your I guess that's a, a sort of a life philosophy kind of thing at some level. But yeah, where to start? Uh, it's it, I, I feel like it's an overlap between uh, lifestyle and work. Uh, but yeah, living in a hundred some year old little cabin in the forest without road access um we do have beach access uh it it just creates more work than for most people in town and i love it uh you know even just to get to town i have to walk a quarter mile up a trail which is great it it allows me to clear clear my head and keep home things at home and town things in town which i really value but uh yeah, things things are harder. I think about the first decade we didn't have power. Or I think about uh, twenty years ago when my oldest son was born. About of breaking ice uh, off of our water tank every morning. Well, even a couple times a day, I think, <laughs> to uh, wash diapers by hand in our hand washing machine. Uh, but I guess why why uh, why am I an advocate for the harder way? <laughs> because I think ultimately it, uh, you know, not only is it character building, but I, I just feel like there's an aesthetic. And I feel like those are the things that connect you to uh, nature, to the forest. Um, you know, I'm I'm eternally grateful that when we moved into our little cabin as renters, it was so small. And had I built a house, I would have never in my wildest dreams thought to build something so small. But... Uh, you know, what does it allow? It, it allows, first of all, it encourages us to spend more time outside, which is great. And then I think it also, um, you know, it, it talking about our habits, um, you know, it, it concentrates them in the home. And uh, it's hard to put words to, but, uh, you know, I think there's more, more of a community aspect in our home. Like it's, there's really not probably as much personal space as there should be. But, uh, you know, I, I, I grew up on a boat. Um, so compared to uh, a 53-foot sailboat, uh, a little cabin in the woods is uh, a mansion, a, a palatial mansion at that. But, yeah, those things, uh, I mean, what, what, are, what are we here for? Uh, are we here to surf the Internet? Are we here to watch TV? Uh, are we here to drive around in our car? Um, you know, some of those things, uh, are fine in moderation, but I think the things that actually provide us with depth are usually a lot of work. And, you know, I think that the things that are more work also, uh, I suppose, uh, make our skills deeper. And those are the things that we can do things with. Um, you know, so for me, uh, I always think about serving my community, and you know I do that through my work. Uh, 
woodwork connecting people with wood, forest, um, you know, all sorts of things like that. I mean, I've kind of been working on some social justice issues through woodwork even, which is something I would have never even imagined possible a few years ago. So yeah, I'm, I'm an advocate for uh, looking for the simplest way, but I think that that's often the hardest way too. And I, I can tell you, uh, you know, having just been working on my roof at home, I could have hired a contractor, but, uh, you know, I used to be a contractor, so I'm up there doing it myself. And, you know, I, I can have lunch at home. I'm, you know, I don't have, uh, well, probably both the positive and the negative associations of a standard career and employer. So, yeah, I, I, I know what's right in my heart, and, uh, and it's not the easy way, but the hard way seems to usually be best for me. Uh, but that's not to say I don't sometimes question why I'm doing it. <laughs> well, I imagine you've you've um, handled a lot of firewood over the years. If if your sole heating source is firewood, although even in a small place, I imagine that's less firewood than than it, it would be in a in a large place. But still, how much how much uh, like how much wood do you? Uh, in talking to other people that that use uh, a lot of of wood for heat, there's a um, it, it seems like it's it's a pretty common experience for such folks to have a sense of this is enough wood, um, and and usually enough wood is way more than they'll actually need. But but you know this sense of of comfort for okay, I can make it through the winter um, and and not be freezing. <laughs> Do you have a sense of like okay the the woodshed's full and that that feels good um and then when it starts to get a little low it's like well it's time to go time to go do some salvaging uh find a beach log or two absolutely yeah i've i've done a lot of uh energy upgrades to our house over the years so we have a super insulated roof now which is uh new to us so i think that dropped us from four or five cords a year down to two to three Mm. and so it really depends on the weather uh in the winter and then I mean, there's so many variables with firewood. If you're, if you're burn, burning spruce, I mean, my gosh, you might end up burning a good 50% or more um, than hemlock. But hemlock takes much longer to dry. So, you know, over the years, I've just learned things like might as well buck up all the hemlock branches too because they're actually quite dry and they have way more heat than the regular wood. Uh, it's just, just a denser wood. So we we learn those kinds of things. Um, so yeah, I, I I don't know. I mean, last year I I was supposed to do a project, and I saw <laughs> I saw the weather was going to be great. So uh, I I took a week off and just cut firewood for hmm. for my family and uh, for a neighbor who uh, has a much bigger house and uh, burns a lot more firewood than we do. But uh, that I think that was probably my my funnest uh, springtime activity last year. The weather was just phenomenal. Being out there, splitting up big hemlock, uh, loading it into the skiff, unloading it. Uh, it. It heats us more than more than once or twice. Uh, that's for sure. Just because we have to carry it up the beach to the woodshed. Uh, yeah, it's it's a lifestyle, but uh, it's uh, it's just so very satisfying and. I get a little fiendish too. I have a bunch of hand forged uh, axes um, from Sweden, and so the splitting is just, you know, truly delightful at that point. Because just going and buying a a cheap uh, imported 
axe from the hardware store is just a, a lesson in frustration. Mm. So, uh, all of that, and I suppose also I, I have far too many chainsaws that uh, I enjoy using. So, for me, firewood is just uh, well, it's a treat. And yeah, uh, we definitely get twitchy if even one bay in our woodshed starting to get a little bit low. <laughs> <laughs> and I think just because anybody who's heated with wood long enough knows that uh, if you put it off, you're going to be getting wet wood, and uh, wet wood doesn't burn very well, and you, you end up burning a lot more because you're actually boiling the water out of the wet wood. So um, I liken it to credit card debt, where uh, once once you get into that debt, it's, it's hard to get out. Uh, you have to really plan ahead, or I guess use the electric heater if, if you're fortunate enough to have electricity. So yeah, it's just one of those uh, kind of obsessive, um, rewarding things in our life uh, that I, I mean, if, if most of our time as humans was as paleolithic uh, people, um, you know, there's, there's something in us that, well, at least in me, that maybe longs for that. <laughs> and so I, I just find it so satisfying. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I find um, I'm not a very kinetic person. So a lot of that stuff to me is like, well, I find it really interesting. Like when you're talking about the different properties of the wood and, and beginning to notice the, you know, the hemlock branches are, are actually more dense than the, the main trunk. And then thinking about why that might be the case, you know, cause presumably it's load bearing of the, you have the leverage of those branches being way out there. And, you know, there's different reasons for that. And then the way that that translates into, I mean, uh, we've talked before about the way that translates into how how the wood works, you know, when you're actually mm-hmm. working with it, how it burns, and so it's it's other ways of of getting to know the the materials uh, and getting to know the trees in, in general, and presumably, you know, this I would imagine translates at some levels to is to the things that you see in the wood that that you're uh, you know collecting from the beach or wherever you're getting it, blow down and that kind of thing translates into looking at the trees that are growing in your lot and and having you don't know if knowledge is quite the right word but but strong hypotheses about mm-hmm. what's going on with them and what what you know making those those connections between what you're seeing on the inside via your your work both woodworking and then the, and then the the firewood work um and what you're seeing on the outside uh, of these of these trees that are growing and and noticing those those kind of patterns and and to me that's all really fascinating i i don't mm-hmm. think i have the sort of kinetic inclinations to <laughs> to um to uh, discover those sort of things for myself i you know there's other things that that are more captivating to me but that's one of the things that i enjoy talking to people about is like what are the things that you, you know sort of light your fire so to speak i guess no pun intended in that <laughs> in that case but uh but i'll take it um and um and the things that that then show up as a result of of that time and spent and you know i've i've heard about the appreciation for for quality tools and the way that you know when you really get into most anything you know there's this this satisfaction that seems like it comes from especially if it's in alignment you know not it's not just something that you're doing because you have to do it but but something that feels aligned with a sort of a broader approach to life that um, there's a depth to that and a, and a satisfaction to that work that uh, is, is, I don't know, it's, it's deep rooted somehow. Like it's, it's, and I don't, I don't, I don't know where that all comes from or why it all works that way, but it seems like that's often, you know, mastery of something 
especially something you know as simple yet complicated because every tree is different, right? So you know, mastering splitting of wood even. It's like, well, some there. Are, I'm <laughs> as I've heard that there are some things that are difficult to split, uh, but anticipating that and then figuring out, like, like there's an intellectual component to it as well. I would imagine both, you know, uh, matching both the the I see and I understand how I'm going to have to move and and how I'm going to have to work with this in order for it to, um, in order for it to to have the results that that I want, whether that be a bowl when you're doing that or a bench or a um, or a, uh, a piece of firewood that fits in your fireplace and didn't take you way too long to uh, <laughs> to get there. Yeah, absolutely. I, for me, I feel like it's about depth of understanding. And so, you know, I, I think starting at the base of the tree, I uh, if, if I'm going to cut a standing dead tree, I take the entire stump, I'll cut it right down to the ground. Um, you know, I think that our pioneer um sort of philosophy is that you leave the stump but uh you know it it might be heavier it might be harder to split but uh for me it's it's also the densest wood and it you know it's also the most challenging so i i take that head on with uh with a set of fine swedish tools um so yeah the the understanding in splitting a tree and in working with it uh it just feels like it grows every season and you know i obviously i'm a woodworker on other fronts too so understanding uh the weaknesses of wood that's where you'd want to split obviously uh you wouldn't try to split right in the middle of a knot um there there's just something about that which is so rewarding on a deeply human level and i've been teaching a lot of people uh splitting wood lately, both family members and, uh, and a couple of customers. And I just see them light up with that understanding. And so once you can visualize what's happening inside of a round of wood, uh, it's, it's neat. And I, I see, you know, just their eyes light up and a different, uh, understanding that they knew was there, but had never actually experienced firsthand. And I think, it doesn't really matter what you're doing. I mean, um, I'm a lousy photographer and I don't have the patience for it. Yeah. But, you know, hats <laughs> off to you, Matt, for going out there with expensive lenses and protecting them from the rain and then uh, going home and processing hundreds of images and culling the best ones and editing and posting. Um, you know, I don't think it matters what you do. It doesn't matter if uh, if you're breaking a sweat or if you're clicking the shutter on a camera it's it's all about the depth and the understanding that you get from that yeah it is funny the things that you know like i say i I don't feel the kineticism and so there are things that people tell me about doing that just sound like you know nightmare fuel for me that would be the worst but then i realize that the things that i do like it's it's just the opposite you know that that the things Mm -hmm. that i take for granted like yeah why wouldn't you do this it's fun it's not hard you know (laughs) But it just it to other people it just sounds like mind numbing tedium, and then there are times you know when it's just like you got to get something done and it's not really you know all that fun in the moment, but it's part of the broader process you know. And for me, the photography you know we were talking a little earlier about learning to recognize things. The photography has been a driving factor in that. I, I kind of as I've been reflecting on 
on my experience over the last 25 years or so since I started. You know, when I was in high school, I was just like I went out hiking with friends and stuff. We just mm-hmm. get out and, and recreate, you know, and I liked getting out. And then I thought, well, maybe I want to take some pictures. I, I kind of remembered my dad taking pictures of flowers when I was a kid. He never really did it a lot, I, but I remember him talking about it a little bit. And, and, and I thought, well, that sounds like fun. Maybe I'll take pictures of flowers. <laughs> so I got a camera to take pictures of flowers when I was hiking and, and scenery, you know, because we have, have the mountains and stuff here. And at the time, I was in graduate school for most of the year, and I liked showing people and talking about home. So, I, you know, that was one of the ways I felt felt – uh, helped me stay connected with home. So, um, so I would, I had a, like a, just a, you know, a cheap photo book cause this was all film stuff. So I was, mm-hmm. you know, the little four by six prints and whatever. And so I would, you know, I would show people stuff in there and I started building a website and that was, it was the combination of, of having pictures of flowers and building the website and then liking to get out and, and go hiking and stuff that I didn't know that it would happen, but it did. I realized that, well, I wanted to know the name of these flowers. And so I tried to, and that, I mean, it's like, how hard could that be? turns out it's not always easy. (laughs) It took me a while to figure out some of them. And I got like the Pojar and McKinnon uh, Plants of the Pacific Northwest book and like thumb through looking at pictures there. And I had no training in like identifying anything. So, um, so that, that was kind of how I started camera, figuring out the names, you know, sharing it with other people on the internet and those kind of things, sort of those, those strands um, and and just liking to be out. um, And actually for me, I almost like talking about being out both before and after more than I like being out. It's this weird Mm -hmm. sort of thing. Like a lot of times being out is kind of uncomfortable and I'm out of shape and all of these things, but then you get me talking about it, you know, places I want to go or places I've been. I love doing Mm -hmm. that. So that's kind of a, I've long noticed that about myself, but um it's it's just one of those patterns that I have. But but those things together then it just like triggered some sort of compulsive obsessiveness in, in my personality where I was like, now I want to know all the things. And so the camera, like that that's how I've been that's how I've learned. I go out and I look for things that look different that I don't that they, they seem a little different. Uh and I'm curious about and then I take pictures and then I go home and try and figure out what they were. Um and so that process is is worked and and as a result of working with the pictures, I think I have a much, I have developed both seeing them there and taking the pictures, working with the pictures at home. I develop a much stronger visual sense of things. Mm-hmm. So I think that's part of the reason that I can look at a song sparrow and a fox sparrow. And most of the time, just like I, I recognize them mm-hmm. and I could point out to you. Yeah. It's probably like you look at a chunk of wood and you just know, you know, you don't really have to think about what you need to do with it. Maybe sometimes you do, but you know, on a particularly difficult piece, but a lot of it's probably just fairly automatic for you at this point. Uh, you see the wood, you know what you need to do. Whereas if I were to come along, I would be doing it the wrong way. And you'd be like, why would you even think of doing it that way? <laughs> <laughs> well, because I don't know any better. Um, but but that's mm-hmm. the experience, you know, and really developing that that sense of things. And, and our ability to have that all be really automatic is is kind of mysterious and marvelous, you know, the way that it just kind of goes into a a body awareness or body knowledge somehow. Um, and if, well, not always, sometimes you, you do that. And if you've had a chance to talk to it, I imagine I, I'm curious when you're teaching people, you know, how much of this is, is sort of bringing into conscious awareness, things that you sort of knew at some level, but not never really thought about in that way. Cause I've noticed for me, when I actually have to start articulating something to somebody, I start thinking about things and it brings like, it basically brings me into 
conscious, like, like I've heard it called conscious competence. Like I might be unconscious competent right. where I, I know how to do it and I can do it, but I don't really have a conscious awareness of that. Um, whereas teaching it requires a little more, at least teaching it well, <laughs> requires a little more uh, conscious competence, it seems like, to be able to step back and reflect, okay, what did I actually see there in that bird? You know, that allowed me to decide what it was or, or know what it was. And then trying to artic- articulate that in a way that allows people to begin to notice that themselves. Uh, and I had, you know, Marge Ward and Marlis Tadine. I got to go out with them some for birds. And so that I remember going out and driving out to Stargav and I was in the back seat with them and there were some birds out on the water, I think coming just as you're getting towards Harbor Point and um, I think I probably, I don't remember for sure, but I think I probably asked Marge what she thought those were. And she said, well, they're probably common mergansers. And I mean, we were going by at 45 miles an hour and they were down and you know, she mm-hmm. was 80. And I was like, well, how do you know? And she goes, well, it's just the way that they tend to arrange themselves on the water and what tends to be there. Mm-hmm. And so I think for me, that opened the possi- door to the possibility that you could do that. Like I wouldn't have necessarily considered that, oh, you can recognize a bird without seeing the particular features uh, you know, like I say, much in the same way that you can recognize a person that you're really familiar with from far, far away, just by kind of their posture, how they carry themselves and how they're walking. A lot of times you just, oh, that's so-and-so, um, even though you can't identify identify them by any of the features that you might uh, think you might need. Uh, you can do the same with birds over time. And so for me, that prompted a, a practice of, you know, I have binoculars, I have telephoto lens, but I almost always try and decide what the bird is before I look at it with those. I'm mm-hmm. just like... I make a guess. You know, I'm not always right, but I make a guess. And it's, it's partly trying to get that, that kind of feedback into that, that level of um, recognition. So I'm curious, you know, when you're teaching splitting of wood and those kinds of things, are you finding that yourself getting a different perspective on, on what it is that you know and how you know it? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think this is a fascinating conversation because, you know, what you just described with photography and going to depth with identification, I feel like that's the hard way because the easy way would just be to sit and watch a documentary. Um, but what are you doing? You're, you're increasing your depth of understanding. And so I, I definitely think teaching it, it's natural once you attain some depth with something, because we might as well share it, you know, make it part of the common knowledge and, I feel like uh, that's that's the genius in traditional cultures that, uh, you know, unlike most of my ancestors, um, have been in one place for thousands of years, is that this information is just passed on from one generation to another and that understanding. Um, so to answer the question about teaching, definitely. Uh, I think partly with my sons, I've, I have three sons and, you know, I've, definitely taught them about uh, splitting wood but even more so my wife being that she's an adult uh, she'll ask why and so I'll see her splitting a piece of wood in the past and it's like well you don't do it that way like go this way with the grain and then she would say well why and that's when I would have to articulate it because I understood it intuitively um, you know subconsciously unconsciously but uh, that articulating has, has taught me a lot. And so I feel like I've taken that kind of teaching into my own process. I, I largely work on my own. Um, and so I'll, I'll think about it myself. I, I'll ask myself, well, why is it this way as I go deeper? And 
articulating to myself um, is is a way of uh, actually bringing the thoughts to the conscious level and like you say, increasing competence. So yeah, I, I, I feel like anyone who has those sorts of skills should be sharing them because it's not just a benefit to the others, but it's also a benefit to ourselves and to our own understanding and ultimately to a greater depth. Yeah, it's something that I was reflecting on recently is is I, I was, happened to be sort of tangentially part of a conversation around, uh, they were uh, computer folks mostly that were talking about you know, watching videos versus reading technical documentation. And they hated watching videos because it was slow and uh, mm. they couldn't just jump to where. And as I was reflecting on that, I realized that for me, it has everything to do with how much I already understand the topic. And so if right. I'm just like looking at a bird book, I can thumb through and say, okay, well, okay, greater scop, lesser scop. What is it that I need to look at between those two? I already know it's one of those two. I just need to remind myself, you know, so I already... I know that it's a duck. I know that it's a, not only the duck, it's a scop. Uh, whereas somebody that's just coming in from like knowing nothing, like uh, the bird book's overwhelming. Like learning to use a bird book is a challenge. It's a, it's a Absolutely. technical reference, you know? And so a video might be helpful because uh, mm. I, 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 I think part of what it is, is you have a mental model. So like for you probably have a really uh, sophisticated mental model of wood and how it's put together and how it comes apart and what you reveal or how to reveal the things you might want to reveal depending on what you're doing, um, or rely on the strengths or weaknesses uh, depending on what you're doing. Yet, whereas I have you know, a very, very rudimentary uh, mental model of wood. <laughs> and so if you were to read you know, a technical document about wood stuff uh, related to the sorts of things that you do, it would probably make sense to you in a way that I would really struggle to take it on board. You know, whereas if I were to watch a video and they were showing, so when you get to work with a person in person, you can actually like point things out and help help them construct that metal, mental model of how this all goes together and how it how it works. So it's kind of that's another way I've, I've kind of been reflecting on recently of of expertise and knowledge and helpful ways to pass that on like you can learn something from a book you can teach yourself birds from a bird book um, and it's better than an ornithological you know paper probably Um, but it's still not as nice as is being able to go out with somebody learning the birds that are there and and having them say in real time like marge did for me oh it's kind of how they're arranged even though like we it wasn't a specific thing it was that that was even a thing you know Mm -hmm. That I could that I could learn to recognize them that way, learn to become familiar with what's around. Like there's only so many options of birds that are about that size on the water, and you know of the ten or maybe fewer, that's the the that's the species that tends to look like that. Uh, and I couldn't tell you what exactly that arrangement was. Like it's just like it mm-hmm. was, wouldn't be something I could articulate in that way. So there is some element of you just have to spend the time getting to know it. But the fact that you can, and, and that that's even there, it doesn't actually take that long uh, to get to know something like that if you're paying attention in that way. And it's something, well, curiosity really helps because uh, uh, it, it tends to drive you to pay attention in that way. Because you could drive the road and, and see those birds all the time, technically see them, but not really see them. You're not really paying any attention because you're not really... That, that was the other thing, I guess, I said, the, the photography and everything. But the curiosity was obviously a, a huge driving mm-hmm. force for me is like, cause I wanted to know what these things were that looked unfamiliar. And for me, that's, I have a completionist tendencies. I like to call it, um, 
uh, where it's like, I want to, if, if I'm starting, I want to see all the something, you know, do all the somethings. And that's not really realistic, but I still feel that drive. So I'm, I'm kind of slowly pecking away at, at what, whatever the most I can, I can get to is uh, in terms of like observing species and stuff. But for me, that's, I, I like to think about it as getting to know the neighbors, um, kind of learning right, to recognize right. The, the the people and and I really uh, you know I appreciated hearing your story about the the birds in your in your yard uh, today because because that is a level that I haven't really gone to as much because I haven't tended to spend you know it's not like I go far I don't usually mm-hmm. go out of Sitka much at all but it's easy to go to the park or to Stargavin or to Blue Lake or wherever you know you go all these different places and you're not really spending that time you know, getting to know a particular individual or two. And there's, there's a depth to that. That's also, you know, I get to know species, but not individuals in the same way. Uh, and I, you know, there are some few trees, you know, that I recognize. I saw you, you posted one that I know we've talked about before. I was like, and one of the things I like to do on social media is look at pictures that people, I'm not really interested in all the selfies or whatever, unless there's a background there. And I'm like, let's see if I can figure out where they took that picture. (laughs) (laughs) And so, so I'm like, do I recognize those mountains? Do I recognize? And there was a tree I recognized, a big bowed tree up on, um, up on uh, Beaver Lake Trail, um, just about just past the past the waterfall viewpoint there, um, which you know must have tipped at some point and I guess straightened itself back out, which is fascinating to me that they could do that because it would have had to have been pretty big when it tipped mm-hmm. and then straightened back out again. So uh, it's always fun. there. There are a few trees that I recognize that are distinctive in that way, but um, I imagine you know, you said you have your quarter mile walk. So you've been doing that for over 20 years now. Mm-hmm. And what's your sort of sense of, of, and not just the walk, but, but, you know, in, in near your, near your cabin, the, the trees that are there, um, at some level forest is interesting because it stays the same, but it's always changing. You know, there's that dynamic equilibrium kind of thing, like the sense of the forest stays pretty similar on humans time scales, but, there are the pockets of disruption or the, you know, the continual growth. Um, I'm curious about what you might have noticed uh, over the over the decades there. Oh, boy. I mean, these things are subtle. Um, I think succession, uh, the oldest house on the property. Well, actually, I think our cabin is. But uh, so but the, the older house on the property had uh, probably too much cut behind it, presumably for firewood. And so uh, that area, when we first moved in, was uh, overgrown with uh, menzesia, Mm. false azalea. And within a few years of moving in, I noticed that it was starting to get shaded out, you know, in in fairly tall uh, hemlock. And so at this point, uh, you know, 20 years later, not only has all of that died off, but it's, you know, rotted away and it's just on the ground in, in pieces. Um, so I've watched those hemlock uh, really mature. And, and there's a few cedar in there as well, a couple of spruce. Um, and I think just occasionally I'll catch myself and think about where a tree was at uh, 10 or 20 years ago. Um, having maintained the trails, I, you know, I've also spent some like intense, uh, concentrated time on certain parts of the trail. So you know, I kind of get a feel for those trees. Um, and you know, you realize that even if a tree is only putting on eighth inch growth rings per year, that it's getting a quarter inch bigger every year. Um, and in 20 years that adds up, it's, it's kind of significant. Um, so that, uh, also watching, um, you know, with 
first, I think it was the, uh, oh boy, what was it? The hemlock, uh, sawfly. And mm. then, then the black headed budworm that's killed and also weakened a lot of, uh, the hemlock. Um, and so it's just been interesting to see, um, a combination of some of the most mature trees have had issues. And then some of the younger trees that have been a bit shaded, some of those have died, um, you know, I've also been watching trees for a long time, you know, at the first signs of fungal growth. So, you know, I keep an eye on the top and then I see, oh, wow, you know, there's just a few green needles up there. And then, you know, a few months later, out come the very first, I don't even know the fungus, my my wife would or you probably would, Matt, but it's just teeny little, it almost looks like turkey tail. It's just mm. uh, a really fine uh, fungus that starts growing there. And, you know, that tells me, well, the tree's officially dead and then just watching how long some of them will stand dead. Um, you know, some of them, it's just a matter of uh, six months or whatever. And, you know, I think the woods dried out enough with a bit of rot, too, that, you know, big windstorm will come and it'll take it off or others just go for a long time. I mean, I could talk about uh, tree succession um, all day long. Uh, but uh, I, I think it's probably not not the most uh, <laughs> intriguing unless unless I were to uh, actually take you out there and just talk about different trees. But uh, I think that, you know, for me, I, I also have been watching huckleberry bushes. And so some of them in 20 years have only grown, you know, six inches because they're shaded and they're just kind of waiting, uh, perhaps optimistically for more light. Um, and some of them have taken off big time. Um, we have a little huckleberry patch that when my son was maybe about three, two and a half or three, he went and he clear cut it. And, you know, that, that ruffled a few feathers, (laughs) (laughs) but it's finally come back. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm, I'm learning that, uh, a lot of these huckleberry bushes are decades old Mm. and we get a lot of huckleberries on our property. And, you know, some of them are probably 50 plus years old. I mean, some of them might be 100. Like, I have no idea, but I can tell you they have changed very, very little uh, in that time. You know, once they become, you know, I, I guess, uh, do we have a monument bush? Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> a project? I remember I remember uh, trimming, helping trim out some huckleberries uh, at, a, at a place and and I took, you know, I was, a, I don't know, inch and a half in diameter or mm-hmm. something like that. I counted, I think, 20 rings in it mm-hmm. and asked the person. And that was about when that area would have mm-hmm. been cleared. So that mm-hmm. I don't know if they have rings. And I kind of suspect that they do. But um, it was interesting that it was, you know, that apparently was the mm-hmm. growth. Way. It was pretty tall. It was a place mm-hmm. where it had light and it needed to, to reach up for, for light mm-hmm. in ways. But, yeah, I don't know how it is. And and you could trim them and they seem to grow up from the they base uh, quite a bit. and. I don't know, maybe it's even helpful in terms of berries to, to trim them. Some things respond well to pruning, it seems like. And, I think so. And in nature, they get eaten by the, the deer, mm-hmm. like to eat those. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for folks that are interested in kind of tracking or noticing these things like you're, you're speaking about for your trail there, I think I, I've noticed it in the in Totem Park here in oh, Sitka. Yeah. There's, there's what we used to call the dark forest part of the forest, which is opened up. And you know, this would have been, you know, for me, like 30 to 40 years ago at this point. Um, but that opening up, uh, it had been, I don't know, a blowdown or something probably 15 or 20 years 
prior to that even that that was beyond my memory but it was really dark is what it felt like and now it's it's is you can tell that it's still younger than some of the other places but but the way that the forest is opening up but any of the trails around here if you just go there even once a week you know and just kind of pay Mm -hmm. attention kind of notice the feel of it the lighting and stuff throughout the year and then as trees fall down and and other trees come back in, you know, just kind of notice those patches. Like Mosquito Cove has had some blowdown out towards the end. And mm-hmm. that's going to come back in, you know, in the sort of successional way that, that things do. So there are opportunities for folks to just kind of, and, and like you're saying, it, it's helpful to actually be in there. Like we can talk about it all the time and it becomes sort of <laughs> academic and dry. But it is it is interesting to realize you know, 10 years in, you're like, well, this is actually pretty different, especially if you take, you know, with cell phones these days, it's easy to take pictures and remind yourself because that is mm-hmm. one of the things that I noticed. I remember uh, somebody asked, I was happened to be standing there. It was Ryan Kaufman, actually, who asked Alice Johnstone about changes in Sitka in the year she's been here. And <laughs> she kind of looked at him and she, and, and then she looked at me and she goes, well, why don't you ask him? And, um, you know, referring to me. And I said, the thing is, is when you live in a place, it's hard to remember the changes. I'm like, you, you can kind of dredge cool. them up. If you leave and you come back, then it seems way different. But when you're here and there are all these gradual changes, they just kind of accumulate over time. And you need something to sort of jog your memory. And if there's, if you have a particular memory about a particular place or something like that, you know, then that can be a, that, that can be a, something that you remember more clearly. And it's not like you can't remember, but you just don't feel it because it's just, you know, it's this continual change. And so that is one of the things I like about photos as well is that that it captures that moment in a way that allows me to kind of return uh in ways that are a little more difficult if i'm if i don't have that if i don't have that access especially for things that are more qualitative like you know a particular tree sure but but the forest you know and and it's easy to just kind of have it's the forest and not quite have such a particularity about the individual trees where as you're describing on your trail i imagine yeah it's the particular trees because um, because you're working so closely with those ones in particular. But, um, yeah, anything else? I've enjoyed the conversation here today. Anything else you want to mention before before we wrap up? Oh, boy. Uh, I Just how exciting it is that it's spring, and, you know, I've seen the first whales. Herring are coming. Uh, I guess we're about to do the old spring forward uh, with daylight savings or... Whatever that is. Yeah, by the time this is airing, it will have happened. So, yeah. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I just, I love this time of year. There's so much optimism in the air. It's such a great time to be outside, uh, especially, you know, when it's not dumping rain and the weather's just been fantastic for working outside, being outside, uh, getting the dog out, whatever. Um, yeah. Uh, spend as much time outside as you can. I guess that's my PSA for the day. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Well, thanks for coming in. (laughs) Yeah, thanks. You've been listening to a conversation I recorded this past week with Zach LaPerriere. I want to thank him for taking some time to visit with me and thank you for spending time with me here this week on the Sitka Nature Show. As always, I'd love to hear what you're seeing out there. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com or get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. I'll be back in a couple of weeks. We'll be past the spring equinox and into the light half of the year. Until then, this has been Matt on the Sitka Nature Show, KCAW Sitka.